When I sat down a few weeks ago in the bright, warm light of Catherine's and Ashley's company to imagine our way into a series of reflections for you this summer, we quickly hit on the idea of looking for inspiration in some of the artistic expressions that surround us in this soulful city of ours. It's kind of a spiritual practice that we might call visio divina, opening the ears of our eyes to hear afresh what God might be saying to us in this momentous season in the long life of Old South Church in Boston. Well, this is the final week of my sojourn in the elegant senior minister's office a few flights of stairs above us. And speaking of local art, this week is when it finally dawned on me to look back at the oil portrait that's been looking at me from the wall of that office all year. This portrait, you should turn around so you can see it. He's going to be there for most of the service, so once you've seen him, you've seen him. <laughs> this portrait of Samuel Johnson, Jr. took up residence in the senior minister's office just a week or two before I did last summer. It needed a place to go when the splendid portrait of Phyllis Wheatley was installed over the mantel in the now Phyllis Wheatley room on the fourth floor, and someone decided that the senior minister's office was the place. <laughs> Samuel Johnson, Jr., whose dates are 1826 to 1899, was one of the lay leaders of Old South Church in the 1860s and 70s and 80s, during the process of discernment and decision that led to our move from the oldest part of the city downtown to the newly landfilled, still under construction, Back Bay. That move, you know, entailed the selling of the Old South Meeting House, and don't you wish you had been able to be at the meetings where that was discussed? <laughs> That Old South Meeting House, which was situated in, and which is still situated in, what had become an increasingly noisy and inconvenient part of downtown. And that decision meant the commissioning and construction of a new home, this building, the new Old South, as it came soon to be known. I've been given to understand that, in effect, we're here because Mr. Johnson, as both proponent and benefactor, was a champion of the bold move that the refounding of this church in this place represented. So Samuel Johnson has been a presence for me in that space this year, but it didn't occur to me until this week as I sat down to write something for you that I actually have some things to ask him. So, knowing how the chance to overhear a conversation between other people sometimes makes you lean in a little, I thought I'd give you a chance to overhear a bit of what I've noticed I have to say to Mr. Johnson in a letter. 
Dear Mr. Johnson, though it already seems funny to speak to you so formally when you've listened in on every conversation I've had all year long in our cohabitation upstairs, may I be so bold as to address you, Dear Sam. I'm writing on a Sunday that's well along the way to the completion of an important year in the life of the church to which you gave so much of your substance and your spirit. Along the way, I've learned a little bit about you. I know that you wholeheartedly embraced the big gust of theological fresh air that was starting to blow among many, but not all, of the Congregationalists in your time a movement that today we'd call progressivism, though in your time it was known as liberal, and in both our times was construed as an antonym to evangelical. The first thing I've realized I need to say to you and to your pastor, George Gordon, for whom this room is named, the first thing I realized I need to say to you, Sam, is thank you. You took an incalculable risk in helping to haul the sails of this old ship around to catch the fresh, intellectually and spiritually liberating wind of the spirit, which was not at all the prevailing wind of that time. And there are many of us, myself included, who would not be here finding shelter and nourishment if Old South had not taken that new theological attack. George Gordon, as pastor, gets a lot of credit for that, which he deserves. But congregational churches belong to their members, not their pastors. And George Gordon could not have set an early course for 21st century Christianity without your encouragement. Thank you, Sam. You're a work of art now. I notice. <laughs> but in your time, I think you were an artist of sorts too, the kind who paints or sculpts with an idea. Artistry is edgy work, risky work. In this case, the canvas was the city, and the medium was time. And you and your architects and donors oversaw the driving of the piles that would bear the considerable weight of this very confident edifice in a new neighborhood. What was it like to keep your balance on the edge between times? You look serene and confident sitting there. What did it feel like to take those risks, aiming for the future? Did it seem to you then, as it seems to me now, that the life of Old South Church is inherently edgy, always somewhat precariously balanced, forever making its way along a line where tectonic plates of faith and doubt, of known and unknown, of hope and worry grind against each other, and an earthquake always seems possible? Did you see the edges when you looked out on your city? 
Sam, I sat and waited a while for you to tell me, listening hard, but you just smiled that slight sort of Mona Lisa smile. <laughs> and my Sunday deadline started to get closer, so needing to stir myself into a new way of listening to see what the ears of my eyes might hear about what you might have seen when you looked out over your city and as I looked out over mine. It occurred to me to walk a couple of blocks and head up to the top of the Prue. I really don't have time to explain the Prue to you now, Sam. You're just <laughs> going to have to try to imagine it. From 50 stories up, I could see the edges of the new neighborhood that drew you and your congregation away from the raucous commercial jumble of downtown. The calm geometry of the Back Bay streets, the elegant green ribbon of Commonwealth Avenue where you lived, and the tiny dots of townhouse gardens. What did those edges look like to you when they were new? How did you think about the fault line between wealth and poverty that the city planners inscribed right before all our eyes on your side of the possible in a city that has been home to wave upon wave of immigrants and generation upon generation of gentry in your time and ours? In the end, you were known not as the merchant that you were, but as the philanthropist that you also were. Did you know that when you died in 1899, the headline on your obit in the Globe was, His Purse Ever Open? So week by week, we take our grateful refuge still under the wing of your generosity in this house you and your colleagues built to be a shelter for our prayers. And we wonder, too, as perhaps you did, how to stay balanced on the edge of the privilege of coming here to pray our well-sheltered prayers for a city that is so woefully underhoused. What would you have seen, I wonder, looking out from the tower that you helped to build in the year we associate especially with you, 1875, the year this building opened its doors? How did you think about the bloody knife edge of justice? with the Civil War not even as far back in your memory then as Nancy Taylor's arrival as senior minister is in ours now. The national experiment in justice that was called Reconstruction was already coming unglued. Five acres and a mule were just words. Did you hear them? How did they sound to the church you helped refound? Peering out over the city from the top of the Prue, I found myself looking for any vestige of the shape of the sandy Shawmut Peninsula that greeted the Europeans who began to arrive 250 years before your time. If in any way one could think of a city 
as a collaborative work of art, then that sandy peninsula was the canvas on which the human artisans built their creation. I think I was hoping from up there to see some lingering shadow of landscape like the faint pencil line underneath a fully developed watercolor, the town cove maybe, or the mill pond, or even just the narrow neck that was once all that connected the peninsula to the mainland to the west. Could you see any of that in your time, Sam? Or was it already long invisible under layers of urban creation? Of course, before the Europeans came, it had been another kind of work entirely, the divine artistry of the web of nature gently inhabited and revered by peoples whose home it had been for perhaps thousands of years. But those late Renaissance, early Enlightenment Europeans, most of our ancestors, liked to fill up their canvases, didn't they? From the top of the prue, it appears that they, we, have laid it on thick. It's hard to imagine anymore what was ever underneath or how to assess the soundness of what it's all built on. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, everyone who hears these words and makes them real in their lives. Everyone who does that will be like the wise one who founds their house on rock. Not for nothing do we call it real estate. We need our places of shelter to be real, whether we're talking about the soft vulnerability of our bodies or the ineffable vulnerability of our souls. So says Jesus, the journey of faith is not just one we take inside our heads, not just a way of warming the cockles of our own hearts. The journey is about weathering real things, and the faith that enables us to live and thrive needs to be real enough to break the surface of our ways of actually living into the visible choices that we make every moment if it's going to give us the shelter we crave it seems to me, Mr. Johnson, Sam, that that kind of real faith enacted, visible faith is what you must have felt you were sinking your pilings into. As someone said, you built a building that screamed, we are not Puritans anymore, <laughs> and cited it carefully at the delicate place where past meets future, but then filled it up with beauty, as you saw beauty. Carved over the doorway, the exhortation to keep the doors open as though you understood already that this place would need to keep balancing itself on the edge between privilege and struggle. You built it at a time when the principles of your nation were teetering on the edge of an abyss, when virtually every family had war dead to mourn, and a people whose freedom had been at stake couldn't be sure which way the winds of history would blow them. 
And now we're refounding it again, Sam, in a time that seems balanced on the volatile line between democracy and oblivion, at the confluence of affluence and indifference, along the raw edge where citizenship and selfishness push against each other at the intersection of mass and caste. Sam, how shall we keep our balance here on the edge of confidence and uncertainty named Old South Church? How did you keep yours? Jesus said, if you sink the foundations of where you live into something real and stake your life on it, then the justice, mercy, and beauty of God will indeed be your shelter, and your house will stand against the storms that will surely come. Build your house on something real, Jesus said, not the mere appearance of piety or the talk of social conscience, not just espoused anti-racism, but lived, practiced anti-racism, not just the idea of generosity, but the genuine, unrestrained sharing of what you really have. Not just words of welcome, but remembering names and the stories that go with them, name by name. Build your house on something real, Jesus said, something lasting and true and good, and it will stand through the storms that are surely coming. Even from the wall above the mantle, I think you're positioned to see the same words out the window that have greeted me every day in that space that we share, inscribed on the frieze of the library across the street. The Commonwealth requires the education of the people as the safeguard of order and liberty. And some part of that education, our part, is the education of the heart, the conscience, the soul. Who else is going to do that? I learned some years ago that Boston gets its name from St. Batalf, a 6th century Christian revered for his success as a founder of monasteries. Boston is St. Town. You have to sort of say it fast several times, St. Town. St. Town. I learned this week, under the influence of your company, Sam, that St. Batalf is actually, this is so good, St. Batalf is actually the patron saint of boundaries. At least that's what it says in Wikipedia, but I'm going with it. <laughs> the patron saint of boundaries and by extension of trade and travel. Now, I'm not sure what it means to be the patron saint of boundaries, but I'll invoke a little artistic license of my own on that one. The patron saint of boundaries the one who keeps company with us at the edges, the one who helps us to balance our traffic across the edges, the one who goes with us when the journey calls for a crossing. Sam, I give thanks for your having balanced 
on the edges, however you did it, of a particularly risky and formative moment in Old South's life 150 years ago. And I know that you're already giving thanks for the company of St. Batalfe on the boundaries that we'll be navigating now on the edge of a new time, a new chapter, before indeed our journey now calls for a crossing. And I'm trusting you and St. Batalfe to keep a watchful and loving eye on your next office mate upstairs, number 21. May this house refound itself over and again on the bedrock of Jesus' words of justice, mercy, and beauty. Jesus' words and deeds and ours. And may these people risk brilliance as they consider over and again the bright new designs that they will inscribe on the waiting canvas of the city, St. Batolf's town. So many possibilities. Amen.